Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, um, uh, another one of our specials where, well, I, I suppose we call this the horse's mouth edition, um, uh, where we get to speak um, <laughs> directly to someone with experience of, well, of, of flying mosquitoes um, uh, uh, during the Second World War. And I, it's such a pleasure to, uh, to be talking to, to Colin Bell. Hello, Colin. Hello, how are you? Uh, very well, thank you. Yes, and you, 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 and James know one another. You met before, haven't you? Oh, I know James quite well. We uh, we go down in the running horse and sink a pint a pint together. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in the old days when we were able to do that. Yeah. No. Ah, when when the club is open. <laughs> when the yeah. club is back open, we're going to go back because because Colin has recently turned ninety nine. Um, no, and... no, no. I'm ninety nine and a half now, James. Well, night time and a half. So, um, so next next year is a big one. I mean, I've got to say, Colin, you look absolutely amazing for your age. Well, yes. it's a matter of luck, James. It's a matter of luck, you know. And uh, when you've got to go, you've got to go. But um, I want to postpone it as long as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, Colin, when I mean, how did it? How did you come to be a, a, a mosquito pilot? in the RAF, in the Second World War? Well, it goes back to the time when I was a small boy and my father used to take me along to Hendon Aerodrome. That's before it became a museum. And um, I used to watch these pageants and, um, you know, it was really stirring stuff for a small boy. And uh, um, I always hoped I'd be a pilot, but it would never be. But, of course, it happened. And uh, I was shipped out to America to be trained by the United States Army Air Corps. And um, when I got my wings and commission, they decided um, very unwisely to retain me as an instructor for their own cadets. Uh, So I was, um, in effect, I I was out there for another couple of years uh, before I came back to this country. And then I was training to be a night fighter pilot and um, I couldn't get a posting. And a chap called Mahadi came along, who was the recruiting officer for Air Vice Marshal Bennett. And he said uh, to me, along with about 50 others, how would you like to join the light night striking force in the Pathfinder group? And I said, that's for me. So I transferred out of night fighters into Bomber Command, which I suppose at the time was rather an unwise thing to do. But it turned out very well because I went on to Mosquitoes um, and I found found myself sort of flying over the angry skies of Germany. But uh, it was all worthwhile. Mm. (laughs) 
So you could have you could have carried on training people if you'd wanted to, Colin. But you wanted to get into the into the action, did you? Well, yes. I I was uh, when I came back from America. They tried to keep me in training command, and uh, I rather foolishly uh, said, "I want to get to grips with the enemy." <laughs> Goodness me! <laughs> Not realising, of course, that the enemy wanted to get to grips with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> however, uh, as you see, it, it all worked out in the end, and I had this fantastic Canadian navigator who. Um, much older than myself, uh, but he'd been an instructor out in Prince Edward Island. And when we were crewing up and I heard, you know, of his experience, I said to him, have you got a pilot? And he said, nope. And I said, well, you've got one now. And uh, that was me. And we were, we were a very effective team. He was the best navigator on the squadron, and I was very lucky to have him. So, Colin, just tell me, what, why do you think it was that you were singled out for, for instructing so early on in your flying career? I think probably, James. The answer to that is that um, uh, I got commissioned and uh, picked as an instructor uh, soon after the Americans got involved in Pearl Harbor. And then oh. the United States Army Air Corps, as it was then, wanted to expand in a big way. And um, I always remember an exchange I had with the station commander down in Dothan, Alabama. And he said, I suppose you think you're going home. And I said, no, uh, well, what else should I be doing? And he said, well, you're not. He said, you're going to stay here as an instructor. And I said, oh, well, it'd be the blind leading the blind. And he said, I don't care what, what you think. He said, tomorrow you go down on the um, apron and you'll have six American cadets and you'll be responsible for them. Good day. <laughs> so you've got so this was early, Robin, haven't you? Yeah. So was this, this was early 1942, was it? And, and, uh, bit uncertain as to the dates, but it was soon after I graduated anyway and got my commission. And then when you joined as a, uh, when you were sent back to England and became a night fighter, what were you, what were you training on at that point? Well, I, of course, I was instructing on advanced um, single engine aircraft in America, which was the Harvard, as you would know it. They called it the AT-6. Uh, when I came back, the first thing I had to do was to convert onto multi-engine aircraft. So I, phoned, I was um, uh, sent to a place called uh, Grantham, uh, and uh, that was a, a, a training school, continuation of training. But I was on, put on to Blenheims, rather clapped out old Blenheims, and um, um, uh, it was it was quite an experience uh, to taxi uh, in a multi-engine aircraft after being in a single-engine aircraft calls for a completely different technique. So it took me, uh, I suppose, about a week or two to get the hang of it. And then I got sent across to Cranwell to sort of polish up. And then I went back to Grantham and I waited and I waited and I waited for a transfer onto night fighters, but it, it never happened, and I got rather bored and tedious. So when Mahadi came along and offered this uh, transfer uh, to Pathfinders, it seemed to me a very good idea, and I jumped at it. <laughs> mm. 
Mm. <laughs> so when, when when was it you joined Pathfinders then? When, when did that, that happen? Well, well, because of delay in doing this, that and the other, I suppose I didn't get transferred until about uh, the middle of 44. And then I went to War Boys, and that's where I crewed up with my fantastic Canadian navigator, Doug. And then we went down to Witten to do some conversion onto mosquitoes. And um, that was quite an experience. Uh, and point of fact, quite a number of people uh, lost their lives training on mosquitoes before you even got onto operations. Not many, but one or two. I know one chap was found at the foot of a mountain in Wales. Um, he'd obviously miscalculated his height or the height of the mountain. Um, these things happen in war. And uh, um, uh, eventually, I think I got down to Downham Market uh, in Norfolk um, in about September 44. So the war was pretty well advanced by then. And uh, we started out on our first operation. And... Um, and so it went on, you know, until we'd done all 50. Fifth, you did 50 sorties? 50 sorties, yeah. 13 of them over Berlin. Crikey. Uh, Ber Berlin was a very nasty place to fly over. If you were going to get shot down, it was more likely to happen over Berlin than anywhere else. Uh, night fighters weren't too much of a problem. It was the anti-aircraft fire. It was lethal. And if you got caught... It gave you one hell of a fright, but um, um, uh, there we are. We. Um, uh, but what we, sort of, Colin? What sort of height were you flying over? Twenty-five thousand, four miles. Yep. So uh, four miles up. But the um, the uh, 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 the ACAC fire was all predicted, and um, because it takes time for the shell to leave the barrel to the time it lands up beside you, and we were told that if we altered our height and um, direction, um, we, would, uh, um, we would be able to avoid it. Well, that was all very well, but we were a bit green. And um, after about five trips, I didn't alter the direction. I altered the height and uh, a shell landed right underneath me and lifted me up about, oh, I don't know, uh, I don't know how high. And... Uh, um, Nasty experience it caused both engines to stop. And um, what? Um, my navigator, who was normally unflappable character, said to me, what do we do now? Uh, which I thought <laughs> was a bit futile. So I said, well, we wait. And we waited, and it looked seemed like six months. And then, astonishingly, both engines restarted, and we continued on our bombing run. And... Uh, um, turned round and went home uh, to complete... Oh, absolutely this. amazing. Uh, but I, haven't, I haven't finished the story. The, the, the whole of the back of the aircraft was lit, shredded like a colander, and if I'd been a fraction later arriving there, it would have shredded me. And um, when in the morning when I saw the fitters, one of them walked up to me, he was the flight sergeant, said, Sir, I think you would like to have a couple of pieces of this shrapnel that I've taken out of your aircraft. And I said, where were they? He said, on the parachute pack that you were sitting on. <laughs> Jesus. 
Um, oh my God! And and a bit, a bit had come up through my navigator's um, uh, uh, trouser leg, and out through the collar on his uh, uniform, and it had missed him. So you how know, amazing! It, it was, it was a bit dicey, and uh, <laughs> um, uh, there we are. It uh, it just goes to prove what Churchill said. He said the Hun is either at your throat or at your feet. (laughs) (laughs) When you're flying over Berlin, Colin, I mean, what can you see down? Can you see lots of flashes of ACAC guns going and bombs bursting and i mean uh, oh, and yes. searchlights yes yes you've got a um, you've got a very clear view you could see the shells exploding round you so you try to avoid those but you couldn't on the bombing run because you no. had to stay straight and level and um, um uh, you had to keep an eye out for night fighters um they weren't too much of a problem excepting jet fighters and um Fortunately, the Germans hadn't got very many of those, but yeah. one let one did latch on to me, and really? of course he he yeah he could go a hundred miles an hour faster than I could, so he was a um, yeah, that was a bit scary. So I'd worked out beforehand what I was going to do, and so you were, you were very well aware of the jet menace, were you? Oh yes, yes, we'd we'd been briefed about it beforehand. And uh, we had this radar device on the back of my aircraft. And if a fighter came up behind you, it put a white light on your dashboard. And um, when this white light came up, I just dropped the aircraft down 10,000 feet and he lost me. So, of course, he had to go back to his ground controller and say, well, where's the Englander? And they said, oh, he's up there. And um, as soon as, within a matter of a couple of minutes or so, my white light came on again, and I had to do this uh, cat and mouse uh, uh, exercise until finally I decided I'd take him down over the streets of Berlin, (laughs) or nearly. No. Uh, No, the reason being that jet fighters use up an enormous amount of fuel down low. I knew that if I skedaddled around down low, um, sooner or later he'd have to go home because he only had 45 minutes from the time that he took off to the time right. he got back. And after a little while, uh, he gave up and left me alone. But it was a, it was a very... It was a very disturbing experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you must be. You must. Your. I mean, your heart must be absolutely pounding. You must be just thinking the next second could be my last, presumably. Well, if he once got a visual on you, you were dead, because his firepower was so enormous that um, he'd wiped you straight out. I had a chat with old Winkle Brown. You know. Oh was, yes. Uh, yes. And he said, "You're damn lucky to be alive." <laughs> <laughs> so I said, "Well, you know, half of your life is luck, and the other yeah, half yeah. depends. Uh, the other half depends on yourself." But what was it like flying the mosquito then? What I mean, what what did you think of it as an aircraft? Because I mean, I whenever I see one, I just think, "What a what a thing of wonder!" It was a fantastic aircraft. It's, I mean, I can't speak highly enough. 
It was the very best aircraft in World War Two, And, of course, it's the loss rate on a Mosquito was very, very small compared to the heavies. Um, uh, so, and, and we could go to Berlin and back in um, half the time that it took uh, a, a B-17 Flying Fortress, and we could carry as much bomb load as they could. So, in th- certainly theoretically, we could, we could go there and back uh, in half the time that it took the Flying Fortress, and sh- in short, deliver twice as many bombs. That's a thought, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Mm. So, Colin, were you were you marking the target then um, on these Pathfinder runs? What was your um, role? No, we were we were engaged in backing up the main force and also acting as spoof uh, decoys. We used to go across to another uh, city and shovel out window to give the impression that this is where the main attack was coming. And then the night fighters would be vectored onto us. They'd come belting after us. And by the time they realised they'd been spoofed, they had to go back home to refuel. So that kept them away for some time from the main force, which would be going to the real target. And they, yeah, so they, they would be the heavies. Yeah, so yeah. you'd be over Dusseldorf while the main force was going in at Bremen or something. You know that you'd be offering a distraction then. We were distracting, yeah, and and occasionally I would mark a target, but it wouldn't be the real target, just to give the impression we we were sort of kosher. We were we were going. To, this was the real thing. And then another thing you would do is what was known as a siren tour. You'd go round to about four or five big cities, they would uh, all have to, all the workers would have to go rushing down into their shelters. So um, that was another thing. Uh, wow, that's interesting. It was, a, it, was a, it was a worthwhile job. And I remember you telling me, Colin, that, that, that sometimes you used to you used to have a nap on the way back. And I, I remember nearly falling off my oh, chair. Ab- absolutely <laughs> true. Absolutely true. I was so confident that um, no fighter could catch up with us other than a jet fighter. Once I cleared the target and trimmed the aircraft up to go back, um, I used to say to my navigator, Doug, wake me up when we get to down the market and then I'll land the <laughs> aircraft. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and that, that he, he, he then claimed that he was able to fly the plane as well as I could. Um, <laughs> well, on one occasion, uh, I had an oxygen failure at 25,000 feet, fell unconscious, and um, then Doug had a chance to prove his mettle. Well, of course, he couldn't. I, I, I woke up at 10,000 feet with Doug panicking around with an emergency oxygen bottle trying to revive me, which is probably a good thing he did. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Colin, how did... I mean, all, all, you're, you're telling us a lot about situations that, that, that are, are quite clearly pretty stressful. How did you... Uh, uh, you know, this is a modern question. How on earth did you cope? What did you do to, to, to deal with... This this pressure that you're under, this nervous pressure. I mean, if I'm if your parachute's being shredded by shrapnel 
and your oxygen's failing, what do you do when you get home to process uh, what you're going through? Do you go to the pub? What, what, what is it that you do? Well, as soon as I got home, I was given a mug of tea by a very attractive wife. And um, just to help things out, she used to also carry with her a ginger beer uh, jar, which was full of rum. And she used to top up my tea with the rum. So that was a good start, wasn't it? And then I used to go up into the mess and eat my eggs and bacon. Then I used to go home to sleep um, because I had my wife living up there with me, all all against all the regulations. And um, I used to live off station with her. So by and large... I'd, and, of course, I hadn't got very much imagination, so by and large, <laughs> <laughs> by and large it was, uh, I, didn't, I didn't find it particularly stressful. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, you were never tempted to take pervertin to keep you going so that you didn't have to have a nap on the way home? Oh, Lord, no, dreadful stuff. Uh, if you took Benzedrine... And the um, and the the the, the uh, salty was cancelled. You 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 couldn't get to sleep. My objective was to get as much sleep in as I could, and that's why yeah. I used to sleep going home. <laughs> on one occasion, <laughs> on one occasion, we was I was fast asleep going home, and well, it wasn't true. <laughs> I used to catnap really, and um, there was a bloody great bang, and uh, um, a shell landed. On just on my starboard wing, we were halfway home, still over Germany, and um, Doug said, "What the hell was that?" And I said, "Well, it was a shell, wasn't it?" And he said, uh, "Well, uh, we don't want that sort of thing to happen again." So when we got home, I had a chat with the intelligence officer, and he said, "Oh, he said, I know what happened to you. You flew over a, a German." Uh, anti-aircraft training school he said um, they were uh, staffed mainly by women and he said they only allowed one shell a night and they saw you coming along nice and steady at 25,000 feet and they were sort of polishing the barrels and everything else and they let fly and they damn nearly got you didn't they and I said yes they did (laughs) so I said where is this uh, anti-aircraft's uh, uh, training school so he marked it on our map and we made damn sure we never got within close to there again <laughs> <laughs> yeah i tell you what though it's 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 made me think that that a lot of people say to me why you know why did we continue with lancasters why didn't we just produce more mosquitoes but uh, another question might be why didn't we make more mosquitoes for the americans and cancel the B-17s? Well, I think, first of all, I think it has to be understood that a very big um, production schedule was underway manufacturing uh, Lancasters, and it would have required um, a big alteration in manufacturing capacity to do that. I think about 8,000 mosquitoes were made, but in point of fact... We had the benefit of both. The only trouble with the heavies was the casualty rate, which was quite horrendous. And it was Mm. horrendous up towards the end of the war. I mean, um, if you had four captains in a room, at the end of three months, if they both all went out on a tour, only one would survive. That's pretty horrendous, isn't it? 
It means yeah. you're standing in the room and you know that three of you are going to be machine gunned or blown up uh, before the end of the tour. Only one of you would survive. Um, that, uh, uh, but on the other hand, the Lancasters could do things that the mosquitoes couldn't do. I mean, for yep. example, they carried this enormous earthquake bomb that tipped the turpits over. Well, I mean, that they could, they, they could um, carry a far, far heavier load than the mosquito. But it's a good question, James. Mm. Were you, I mean, did, did you feel apprehensive about the fact that the mosquito was in large part made of wood? Or if you're going to be hit, it doesn't, it doesn't really make much difference whether it's wood or thin metal, aluminium, does it? Well, I think I think there's a lot um, a lot of misunderstanding about this. By the time the mosquito laminates were made and heated and compressed and everything else, I believe they were almost as strong as metal. And although it was called the wooden wonder, um, well, that's um, that's author's license, yeah. <laughs> which you would understand. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. I would never, never distort the truth. Um, <laughs> yeah. So where were you at the end of the war then, Colin? When the war ended, yeah, I was. Um, I had finished my tour. Doug had gone back to Canada to study forestry, and he incidentally ended up, I believe as the president of the Forestry Commission. So you can see what an what a able man he was. And yeah. um, I went across to uh, Canada to be on a transfer to um, ferrying duties. And I ferried mosquitoes back from Canada to this country. Um, what happened at the end of the war? Well, on VE Day... I was uh, out in a place called North Bay, Ontario, ostensibly trained for ferry duties. Um, right. And um, on VJ Day, I was at a place called uh, Bluey West One on the um, west coast of Greenland, uh, staging my way across London, Ontario, up to uh, Goose Bay in Labrador, across to Bluey West One, across to Reykjavik, and then down into uh, Presswick in Scotland. So on VJ Day, actually, I was at uh, uh, in Bluey West One. So Amazing. I never did have a chance to participate in all the hijinks associated <laughs> either with VE Day or VJ Day. But that's life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Colin, that's oh. been absolutely amazing. Thank you. Yes, thank for, you so um, much. Yeah. Thank you for talking to us. And, and lovely to see you looking so well. I'm sure we can twist Al and Joey's arm as well to come and uh, join us for a drink in the um, in the RAF club when all this oh. shenanigans is over. That That's absolutely perfect, Colin. Thank you so much. That's right. Yep. Wonderful, wonderful talking to yep, you. Thank brilliant. you. Yeah.